If you have a Bible with you, I would ask that you would open it to the book of Zephaniah as we continue to work through the 12 minor prophets. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can find a black ESV Bible in the pew in front of you, and uh, you can find the book of Zephaniah on page 740 of that Bible. I would have to think that it would be difficult to be the son of someone who was famous, to have to follow in the footsteps of a father who accomplished much. Specifically, it comes to mind in in the area of athletics when you have these very, very famous men who do great things, and then you hear that they have sons who are attempting in the very same sport that they played to make a name for themselves. How difficult it must be. It must be true in the business world. It must be true in academics to follow in the footsteps of someone who has done so much. Zephaniah is, in his own little way, in this same sort of position. Unlike almost any of the other prophets that we've turned to, his genealogy goes back several generations. He makes it clear that he is related not just to any old dads, but all the way back to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is not just any old king. Hezekiah was a great king. In 2 Kings 18, we read that, unlike most of the other kings, Hezekiah did precisely what David, his father, had done, that he was a good and wise king. He walked faithfully, even through a difficult situation with Assyria when they were threatening to destroy Jerusalem. He stood fast by the word of the prophets and the word of God that had come to him. God did indeed deliver him and his people. The genealogy also sets him against the more famous progeny of Hezekiah, the current king of Judah, Josiah, who likewise did well, finding the book of the law, performing the reforms that it called for. But Zephaniah, interestingly enough, sees past that. He receives a vision from the Lord, not about the prosperity of Judah, not about the ongoing reforms, not about how they would last into the future. But rather, he saw a vision from the Lord about a day of dread and distress. In that sense, while Zephaniah might be something of an odd book, it is a good book for our day. It is wrong simply to look at the nature of the world around you and assume that all is going to be well just because all is well. Zephaniah's prophecy demonstrates this. All seems to be well in Judah. Yes, there was idol worship. Yes, people had turned away from God, but... Josiah was attempting to turn them back to God. Josiah was calling them back to be what they were meant to be. But Zephaniah sees through this. Josiah, as faithful as he was, would have children, and Judah would have kings that sat on the throne that will show themselves to be both evil and inept. Jehoiahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin. The people would turn from the Lord. Zephaniah's prophecy would indeed come true. This is not the most famous of the Old Testament prophetic books. It doesn't get much play in the New Testament. A lot of its imagery does happen to appear, again, in the book of Revelation. And we might want to think that there are more important prophets, and perhaps that's true. But Zephaniah, just like all the other books and all the things that we've said about these minor prophets, has much to say to us today. And we would do well to listen to what the Lord has spoken through his prophet. And Zephaniah, like other prophets, is going to weave back and forth in his topics. So while we would do well to hear from him, we're going to tackle them kind of topically and not progress through the book. So unlike many of the other books, 
I would invite you to turn to Zephaniah as we will read its entirety before we get to anything that I would like to say about it. If you would, turn to the book of Zephaniah as we begin reading in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord or who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the, the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. And on that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered. Their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The man, the mighty man, cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like the dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation. Before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord all you humble of the land who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord, for Gaza shall be deserted and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon and Ekron shall be uprooted. 
Woe to you inhabitants of the sea coast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left, and you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and, flo- and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Amorites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them. He will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place, all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the windows. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust shows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, Surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, 
and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. And I will save the lame. I will gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of our God. Quite beyond the typical judgment that we have found in almost every prophet that we have come to, not all, the book of Jonah and the book of Obadiah saves the the sort of judgment against the people of Judah and the people of Israel that we find even here in Zephaniah, there are things that I would like to point out. I don't want to dwell on the judgment that we have covered so many times and what they deserve for that, but I do want to draw your attention to just four things this morning. First, Zephaniah seems to reset creation. He seems to reset creation. Growing up, As a child of the 80s, by the time the 90s rolled around, all of my friends owned Nintendos. Nintendos had two buttons on the front of them. Both were important. One was power and one was reset. Now, if you push them in the right order at the same time, you could actually save your progress in a game, and that was brilliant. But that reset button was also helpful. So if your friend was running up the score on you like 49 to nothing at halftime, sometimes your finger would slip and just kind of hit that reset button, and you'd say, oh, I guess we'll never find out how that game will end. It never happened to me, but I've heard that scores like that happen to lesser people. God is going to reset creation. In verses 2 and 3, he makes this case of just erasing everything in creation. He's just going to redo all of it. Listen to how he talks. He, he basically walks back the creation account. In the creation account on day five and then in day six, we have the creation of fish and the creation of birds and then the creation of beasts and then the creation of man. And Zephaniah walks all of those backwards. I will sweep away man and beast. Boom, boom. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. He then talks about the, the rubble with the wicked. That rubble seems to have something to do with the, the nature of idolatry. He, he seems to even be talking about the, the very things that you make idols out of, the wood and the stone. I will remove those. This is a dissolution of all of creation. He 
he ends with the same idea. In the fire of his jealousy, he says in verse 18, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end. He will make of all the inhabitants of earth. This is a theme that will get much play in later apocalyptic literature and scripture. Second Peter 3 says something along the same lines. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Not just in Second Peter, but much of the book of Revelation talks about this dissolution, this dissolving, this burning with fire of creation. The picture, as we read through the rest of the book, is obviously not just an undoing of creation, as though God is saying, I've had enough of this. I simply want to get rid of it. I've had enough of you people. I've had enough of your sin. I've had enough of your rebellion. I'm just going to get rid of all of it and exist happily and beautifully as a triune God in my own persons forever and ever. Amen. Rather, because this very land is given to the remnants, which he makes the case of time and time again, I will give your land to the remnant of Israel. It's clear that he doesn't just have the dissolution of the land in mind, but he has a new creation in his head. And this, along with other Old Testament passages like Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones, implies to Paul, amongst other New Testament authors, that what happens to us in our salvation is nothing short of a new creation of God. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are the first fruits of a land that isn't even here yet. That God will somehow remake all of creation. God will somehow do this. And the very spirit working upon you that gives you new life, you are the very bud from the ground of the winter that has come and passed as God has made all things new again. This might very well all be metaphorical. It's clear that as Paul talks about us being new creations, if it follows in this that we are not burned up and then remade afresh again, but is a renewing of who we are, perhaps it's metaphorical. Perhaps it's not. The point is simply this. For God's true purpose in the world to be realized, the earth and all of creation cannot stay the way it currently is. You need to understand that this is a gift. It's not a reality only. It is a gift to us. Here it's meant as a warning for them, even as it is in Second Peter, and even as it is in the book of Revelation, but it is a gift to us. Yes, the unrighteous will be swept away with the brokenness of the world, but the righteous of God were never meant to eat bread by the sweat of their brow. The difficulties of this world, the difficulties of living in this world, not just of our having sin in our lives and, and having the sin of others bear down upon us, but the, the simple difficulties of the way in which this world is, the reality of a fallen creation. 
will be undone. Creation is not meant to groan the way it does. And one day God will put an end to all of that. God is not a kind of God who makes some of our existence good, but he will look at all of it, our bodies, our lives, the land we walk on, the water we drink, the air we breathe, and he will say it is very good. Secondly, I would draw your attention to the rethought comparison. To a rethought comparison. The next thing to notice about this prophet is the ease by which he transfers between the judgment of the world and the unrighteous nations and Judah. Directly after, he talks about this destruction of the entirety of the world, which is clearly linked to the destruction of Gaza and Ashkelon and Ashdod and Elkron and the Carathites and Canaan and the Philistines and to lands far away to the entirety of the earth. He smoothly makes the transition directly to Judah. They are caught up in the same sin just as everyone else. Their sin is just like everyone else's. Often in Scripture, we get the sense that the Jews or the Israelites in general thought that they were immune to such judgments. After all, we are the people of God. You can go back to Amos, where Amos implies that the people of Israel, as wicked as they were, were longing for the day of the Lord to come. They were hastening it on. And Amos says, I don't know why you guys want the day of the Lord to come upon you. It's going to destroy you. They get the sense that simply because they're Judah, simply because they come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, simply because they come from the line of David, that somehow they're going to be spared, regardless of how much like the world they look. They think, well, we are, after all, God's people. He has given us his promises, his good and unconditional love. But they had polluted themselves with foreign gods. Immediately, Baal is mentioned in verse 4 of that first chapter. Even those who commit themselves to the Lord have also committed themselves to foreign gods in 1.5. All of Jerusalem will fall. The destruction that we read of in here is typical of the prophets. God says he will search through her with lamps, indicating not just the darkness and the distress and the evil of that day, but demonstrating the thoroughness with which God's judgment will come. No one will hide and get away with it. No one will bypass his judgment. It is coming down on all of it. Many seem to think that God won't do anything. He simply won't act. These other gods might, but not Yahweh. Friend, we are prone to think these very things today. They, they looked around. They said, well, God hasn't judged us yet. He didn't judge us on Tuesday. He didn't judge us on Wednesday. I did horrible things on Thursday, and Friday still came. The same dawn, the same night, repeat and rinse and rinse and repeat and rinse. Just keep, keep going because nothing's ever going to change. We know this is true, that people think this. We've read it already in Peter. He says, don't buy into that way of thinking. You might look and say it's been a thousand years. Things have just kept going on the way they've gone on. It's been thousands of years since Zephaniah wrote this. It's thousands of years since he established the Davidic kingdom. 3,000 years, 4,000 years. Peter says, that's not even a week to God, man. You're not even to Thursday yet. 
A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day to him. He doesn't experience time the way you experience time. Friend, don't assume that because the Lord tarries, that tomorrow is going to be just like today and postpone doing what you ought to do. Judah thought that they would get away with it, that they would be spared simply because they carry the name of Judah. But they will be returned to the dust just as they are, and their flesh will be worth nothing more than dung. And nothing that they have desired on the earth will save them in that day. And while, again, chapter 2 seems mostly given over to the destruction of the nations, when we turn to chapter 3, we are again expecting that this defiled city, this rebellious woman, is nothing but the nations. But it's not. Just as the nations were polluted, so is Judah polluted. We always need to strike balance. It's not always possible. We ought, and we do, talk about the preservation of the saints. That's an important doctrine. The idea that when God saves someone, he saves them fully and sufficiently. He hangs on to them, in the words of John, like sheep that are part of his flock. He puts them in the palm of the hand of Jesus Christ, and no one can pry them out is good and right and true for us to hang on to these things. As we like to sing, He will hold you fast. But there is another reality that must be stressed. That particular doctrine is meant to give security to those who live with faithfulness and repent when they sin. It is simply not meant for those who want only to be forgiven, but never to have fruit along with that forgiveness. Jesus himself said this in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You should, friend, have no faith in your salvation if you are simply nominally devoted to Christ. This was Judah's problem. Judah thought, we have Yahweh. So a little bit of ball added in can only help. We have Yahweh, so Milcom would be fine too. Maybe he'll give us a little bit of extra security if Yahweh's not paying attention to what we're doing. It didn't add extra security. It added doom and destruction to them. Friends, you cannot make their mistake. You cannot think that you are safe because you show up here. You cannot think that you are safe because your life has a little bit of Jesus in it that you wear around like a talisman to avoid any sort of destruction that will come upon you. They knew God. They did not know God rightly. Yahweh is not just one God of many gods. He's not just something to be added into the pantheon of gods. Friends, do not pledge your life and your fidelity to the Lord and Milcom. Do not pledge your life to Jesus and money. Do not pledge your life to Jesus and fame. Do not pledge your life to Jesus and political power. Do not pledge your life to Jesus and a lot of entertainment. 
Do not pledge your life to Jesus and any of the things that you see in this world. Friends, I promise you, you will not be spared. Don't think that you compare well with the world just because you have a little bit of Jesus in your life. Just because you come to church, just because you give. If you live like the world, you will be judged like the world. Third, there is a remembered covenant. There's a remembered covenant. For all of this absolute devastation that we see through the book of Zephaniah, there is, as we would expect, a remnant that God saves. We expect this because we know our God is faithful to save that remnant. Those who are faithful to him, he will be good to. His promises are secure forever. He again promises the land to his people back in chapter 2. We read that all of this destruction that comes upon Gaza and Ashkelon and Ashdod and Elkron, to the seacoast, to the Carathites, to the Philistines, all of it is so that the seacoast and all their lands shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. These known and bitter rivals to Judah will not exercise their authority over them. They will not even exist alongside of them. God will remove them completely and give the land as he has promised to them. Yet this promise seems slight in comparison to what Zephaniah is saying. He is not promising his people a slice of land in the Middle East, but rather because he is intent on destroying all of the earth. He is giving it all back to them. All of creation will belong to his people. The judgment that comes down on the land of Palestine also falls on the entirety of the earth. Just as he keeps Palestine for his people, so the whole earth will be theirs. This then leads into this beautiful picture, not just of the salvation of a remnant of people who were related by biology and genealogy to Abraham, but to all of the nations and all people from those nations. Look with me in chapter 3, verse 7. He says, I, I surely, he said to him, them, you will fear me when you, you will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you, but you're all the more eager to make your deeds corrupt. I'm, I'm destroying all these nations, but you're not coming back for me. And yet, in verse 9, at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Not the speech of the peoples, not the speech of my remnant, not, not the speech of those who have known me, not the speech of those who I have called myself to, not the speech of the physical children of Abraham, all of the peoples, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. It's clear that this remnant that is being saved, not just from Israel, but from all of the earth, just as Judah will share in the devastation of the world, so the world will share in the salvation of Judah. It is clear that this people is not perfect and not without sin. It's not that they are holier than all the other peoples. It's not that there are people who are living in these foreign nations who said, you know, I bet you there's one God over all creation who exists as three persons and one being, and I expect that he's probably going to come down to earth and save us from our sins. They weren't holy. They were just as wicked as everyone else around them. God says that he will change their speech. He goes on to say, 
You won't be put to shame in verse 11 because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. It's clear that these are traitors to God. It's clear that these are not people of clean speech. They are people just like everyone else on the earth. Why has God saved them? By His grace and only by His grace. God calls a people not just from Judah but from all of the world to be with Him simply because He is gracious to them. And it's important for us to spend just a second to talk about what that grace looks like. You, you are never, ever to think of God's grace as reluctant. As, as though he, he gives it to you, but it's kind of like just a contractual obligation. It's like, well, I, I made this covenant a long time ago. It was kind of rash. I probably shouldn't have done it, but I did it. And now I've got to be gracious to you, you worthless little people. So you lucked out on that one. So uh, I guess you can be saved and I'll make a good land for you. But I, you know, I'm kind of hesitant. We sometimes talk about our worthlessness, which is true. God saves them by His grace and only by His grace. It's not because they've done something that God looks at them and says, now that's the kind of person I want on my team. It's not because you have skills and talents that He needs. It's not because He finds anything in you that is very praiseworthy. It's not because of any of that. It is actually because He just loves you. But don't let your worthlessness dim the love of God for you. He loves you. Not because you're worthless, but he loves you because he loves you, and that love is real, and it is true. Listen to verses 16 and 17 of the third chapter. Zephaniah writes, On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He is a warrior to save. Our God will go to battle for us. He will go into a midst of a fight that is not his for your sake, and he will win. Has not Jesus Christ done this for you? The very fight that you couldn't win against your worst adversaries, whether it's sin or the devil or death itself, Jesus Christ has entered into that fight for you, and he has won decisively the victory for you. He is a mighty warrior sent to save. But he doesn't do this simply because the father has bid him go and and the son's business is servitude. We are in Advent season. You are never to think that the father looked at the eternal son and said, son, I want you to go. And he said, meh, okay, if I must, I will. It is the son's good pleasure not simply to do the Father's will, but to accomplish His own will, which is always and will ever be identical with the Father's. The Son came just as much as He was sent. The Son is co-equal, co-eternal, and co-willed with the Father. They have one will, for they are one person. And if it is the joy of the Father to send the Son, it is the joy of the Son to come for us. Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, comes willfully Willingly, joyfully, and gladly, because he loves you. Zephaniah goes on to say, 
he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exult over you with loud singing. And I love that loud singing. It's not quiet singing here, right? He's not doing this quietly like he doesn't want other people to hear. He, he's the dad who doesn't care if you're embarrassed by his love for you. He is going to sing loudly to you. He is going to let the world know that he cares for you, that he loves you. He is happy to have us. He's not better for having us. He's not lucky to have us, but he is happy to have us. Don't forget that. Don't think that he's reluctant. He is filled with joy over you. He rejoices over you. You're precious to him. We are indeed wicked and unworthy, but God rejoices over us. And the picture that comes here is singing over us like a man sings over his bride. On the day of their wedding, the happiest day that they could have conceived of. This is the very picture that's picked up here, one that's taken from Isaiah 62. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That's what Pastor Richard read this morning. Jesus gave his life for us because he loves us and wants to rejoice over us and is happy to call us his brothers and his sisters, and the Father is happy to call you sons and daughters. He will quiet you with his love. A parent doesn't know what that's like. Kids upset. They've hurt themselves. They've injured themselves somehow or they're frustrated by something. Especially when they're small. You, you comfort them. You speak in their ear. It will be all right. I love you. We seek quiet the angst and the anger and the grief of our children by affirming our own love over them and God does the same to us. He will quiet our questions. He will quiet our pain. He will quiet our sorrows and our frustrations. His love will simply quiet us in his peace. Friends, your God loves you. He's not reluctant with his grace. He hasn't taken you as sort of secondhand things because he couldn't get better. He's taken you because he loves you and will always cherish you. He is happy to have you. He rejoices to hear from you. He willingly fights for us, and all of his love is for us. Fourthly, there are redeemed castaways. Redeemed castaways. It's worthy or worth our time to note the kind of people, generally, Zephaniah says, are going to be saved. We've already mentioned that they're sinful people. They're not perfect people. They are people who need to have redemption. They need their speech cleansed. They need to have their rebellion forgiven. However, all of this has real life effects on us. If God has set his affection on us, then there are things that we must do to make that salvation known. The salvation that comes only from God himself, yet that salvation that comes to us as a renewed creation is meant to mean that we have fruit in our lives. As Jesus has said, you will know them by their fruit. What is some of that fruit? Well, they will seek the Lord. 
back in chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Who will be hidden? Those who seek the Lord, not those who run from Him, not those who fight against Him, but even in His burning anger, those who run to Him. Those who saved will be humble. They're not proud, at least they're not anymore. They've been humbled. They have learned to listen. They've learned to be taught by the Lord. They are obedient. While they might not be perfect in that obedience, they are those who actually seek what the Lord God has called them to do. They are not those who say, yes, Lord, and do otherwise. But they seek to do what the Lord has commanded. They don't make a pro and con list when the, the Lord says, hey, you ought to live this way. Say, well, okay, con, hell. All right, pro, not hell. Okay, like, that's not, that's not what God's people do. They hear the command of our Lord, and they say, yes, we, we obey. It becomes part of who we are. They seek to find out what the Lord's command are for their lives. They pursue those commands with rigor, not because they think they can earn salvation, but because they know the God who has called them to salvation is good to them, that he loves them, and therefore has given them good commands. They pursue righteousness. They seek to be holy, but not just in their own personal lives. Righteousness is almost always, in Scripture, a public thing. It is not just your own righteousness. It is a righteousness that seeks the best for other people as well. This is precisely what's said in chapter 3, verse 5. When it talks about God, the Lord within her is righteous. Well, what does that mean? He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. So his righteousness is not just holiness. It's not this internal, rightly ordered person. His righteousness is the fact that he doesn't do injustice, and conversely, he always does justice. Each dawn, he does not fail. He is consistent, ever-present with justice before others. That doesn't mean that he is seeking justice for himself. That means he is seeking justice for others as well. Well, what's more? In 3.18, we find out that these people, these people that God will save are the lame, they are the outcasts, and they are disgraced. Generally, not always, generally, God will take in all those whose sins would relegate them to the fringes of society. Those who the world might think of as worthless, God will treasure as his greatest. While it's not a sure thing, you can almost set your watch by this fact, that if you seek to be well-loved by the world, if you seek to follow the world and find their approval, you, friend, will never get the approval of God. So much of Christianity lately, perhaps for a long time, has been nothing but taken up with trying to sit at the cool kids' table, a place where social pecking order was set in your middle school and your high school days. So many churches seek that kind of thing. No doubt we are as guilty as others at doing the same thing. That isn't just playing up to the elites in our society. Anytime a church plays to a crowd, anytime the church turns and twists and converts its message in order to gain people, it doesn't say what the Lord says, but it says what 
the Lord says in such a way that the people would be gently led into it anytime we try simply to garner the approval of those of the world without thinking that the Lord needs to do a mighty work in their lives. We try not to be outcasts. But are outcasts not the very people that Jesus came to save? Is that not what Zephaniah says? Is that not what we find in Jesus' own life? The man doesn't sit down and eat with the righteous. He eats with the sexual degenerates. He doesn't eat with patriots. He eats with the traitors. He eats with those people that everyone in their society would have rejected. Why would you want to be anywhere else? Why would the Lord be anywhere else? Why seek the approval of the world only to lose the love of Jesus? Seek not the approval of men, friends, but seek the love of God. Don't be afraid of being an outcast. Don't be afraid of living distinctly from the world and not fitting in with the world. That means good things as long as you fit in with God. This is the ESV. I I rather love how the Christian Standard Bible closes the book of Zephaniah. It says, When I restore your fortune before the eyes of the world, it puts a period there, and then it has a separate line altogether. It says, The Lord has spoken. It's fitting. That's all it takes. The Lord has spoken. Thus it has been said, thus it shall be. Friends, the Lord has shown how good he is to his promises. The word of Zephaniah will be no different. If the world is going to be dissolved, if God's grace and wrath will be shown in equal measures, what shall we do? We shall do what we can. We will wait upon the Lord. We will seek the Lord's face. And we will do the things that he has commanded us to do. And we will trust that our Lord Jesus Christ, whose glory has been shown to us in the cross, whose willingness to die for us and to go into battle for us has been well noted. We will entrust ourselves to him and to his great, great love for us. Let us pray. Our God, how kind and good you are to those who draw near to you. And what terror and dread awaits all those who flee from you in pride and arrogance and in sin. Draw us to yourself. Impress upon us your goodness and love and grant us repentance where needed. Show us the truth of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And may his sacrifice for us be ever sweeter with each passing day. We ask these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Would you stand and sing with